you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We'll begin there in just a moment. Um, <clears throat> what I want to do tonight is uh, not necessarily begin another series, but to a degree, another series. The uh, Paige has talked to me a couple of times about, um, you know, what I'm going to be preaching the next Sunday, and I said, well, I was actually thinking about starting a, a, a series on this or that, and a couple of times as we've talked about that, she said, you know, it's okay to just preach, you know, one spinoff every now and then, where you don't have several different, uh, uh, several different lessons going along with that, but um, I did want to go ahead and, and preach a couple of thoughts that I've been thinking about in terms of uh, fellowship. Um, this is a word that you find all throughout the New Testament, and it's interesting because our denominational friends, uh, the, much of the religious world, I think just is really off when it comes to uh, what fellowship looks like, what fellowship is, uh, how to define fellowship. And so I wanted to uh, just hopefully look at... Uh, several different passages throughout the New Testament where it uses this Greek word, the, the root Greek word, um, and see how the Bible uses it. A lot of times, and if you've read the article that's in the bulletin, you'll, you already know this, but uh, it kind of talks about how much of the religious world, or just many, many people use this word in a lot of different ways, especially when it comes to just social, social events. Um, he he kind of mentions as an example, you know, you have uh, churches that begin building dining rooms and they call it a fellowship hall or they build a game room or an arcade and they call it a fellowship room and uh, you know I, a lot of times what you have are people that are just putting that term using it as kind of a rubber stamp for whatever they want to do and so what I want to uh, why the one of the reasons I want to look at this is just see how the Bible uses this word uh, and what we're supposed to take from that truly what we're supposed to take from that so as we begin by looking at a few different thoughts when it comes to this idea of fellowship what our responsibility is when it comes to fellowship with one another with God I want to just begin with the very simple question of what is biblical fellowship um, and again, I do think that sometimes it's kind of hard defining, and that's why you need to go back to the New Testament and see how this word is used. When you see the context of the passages in which it's used, and when you see all of the different uh, moments that the New Testament writers decide this is a good time to use this word, that is the best way to figure out what a certain word means. I think the same way with grace. I especially think the same with the word faith. That's another one of those words that uh, the religious world tends, and not just the religious world, but as we talked about earlier this morning in the Bible class, much of the secular world tends to uh, misunderstand and, um, and really just misdefine. So let's just start this uh, evening as we look at this word uh, by looking at a few different passages that it's used throughout the New Testament and see just how it's used. Um, first of all, again, if you're in 1 John chapter 1, we're going to begin by reading those first few verses there. 1 John chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. It says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message which we have heard, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And so that's kind of the root passage that I wanted to look at as we begin by uh, trying to define this word. And that is because, I mean, when you start by talking about fellowship, you have to understand before you even get to the discussion of, well, how do we have fellowship with one another? And what are, you know, different avenues of fellowship and what that looks like? We have to understand where it comes from. God is, is the, the culmination of fellowship. He is the entry point. If you don't have fellowship with him, there's no way that we can have fellowship with each other. When, you, when you're talking about the family of God and the church, it is specifically a relationship, fellowship with him, true fellowship with him. And so we're not talking about, you know, maybe uh, false uh, Christians, people that, that are just merely playing the part just because they say or they're acting like they're playing the part. That doesn't mean they have that fellowship. It, we're talking about true uh, discipleship and true faithfulness. And so... Uh, we only have fellowship uh, with each other when we have fellowship with God. And ultimately, that is the most important thing. You look at uh, passages that talk about the greatest commandments, and you even see that progression there. What, I mean, what, is the, what are the greatest commandments? You shall love the Lord your God essentially more than anything else. He, t he takes the top priority. And then, and then under that, the second greatest is like it. You shall love the na your neighbor as yourself. And so you, have, you will love God more than anything, and then under that, you need to love your neighbor. Um, and so you even see that progression uh, all throughout in several different ways. But it is the fellowship with God that matters most. Uh, because we're not, we're not just trying to get into this so that way we can have an you know, interesting relationship with one another, an interesting kind of club. That's not what this is. What matters is that I actually have a true relationship with the Father so that way I can have redemption, so that way I can salvation. Because without him, I can't have any of those things. Um, and so that's where the conversation has to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so you have to follow his parameters. You have to follow his guidelines to begin that kind of fellowship with him. Now, everything else falls underneath that. If we at least start with that uh, in the conversation, we, we have this down, then we can continue in the discussion. And so there's a few different places that this word is used. And one instance is, is this notion of participation, or, or rather sharing in worship. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, and you might put a marker here because we're going to come back to this passage later on in the study, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, it says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And I, I meant to highlight those words, but when you see the, the word sharing both, par, both times in the verse 16, that is the same word for fellowship. And so you could essentially read that as, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a fellowship in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a fellowship in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Uh, and again, we'll come back to this uh, passage in just a moment. But you see this notion of uh, fellowship. What does it look like? It looks like sharing to a degree. And particularly when it comes to one aspect of our worship, which is the communion. That moment where we are remembering the memorial of Christ. That sacrifice of Christ. That commandment. That, that privilege that we have. And every week when we do that, we're engaging in fellowship. With God, we're engaging in fellowship with one another uh, to a degree. And so just automatically you have uh, uh, that kind of fellowship just within certain aspects of worship. Not only that, but something else that, that we're very familiar with, the notion of the contribution uh, of, of giving a collection, as you see in 1 Corinthians 16, over in Romans chapter 12, first of all, um, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Again, the same word for fellowship is used uh, in verse 13 as contributing to the needs of the saints. And so what else does fellowship look like? Well, it looks like that uh, a part of it is that contribution, but not just for any reason. There are still specific parameters that God has set up for that kind of contribution. And one of the main focuses that you can't forget is that it is specifically for the Lord's kingdom. Uh, and contributing to the needs of the saints, they are a part of that kingdom. And so it never goes outside of that spiritual realm. Um, and again, w w the reason I'm, I'm kind of harping on this is because this is a, a, one of the fundamental things. It's, it's a foundational element when you talk about this notion of having fellowship. You, it sticks. The, the scope of that remains in the church, and it can't go out to any secular part outside of the church. This is, uh, this is specific to uh, God's kingdom. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you see the same word again. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation or fellowship in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That, that's a lesson in and of itself in verse 5. I love that notion of, of giving themselves first to God and then uh, giving themselves to, to them, to the, to the brethren. But in verse 4, again, that word participation, same word for fellowship. Over just a, uh, just a page in chapter 9, beginning in verse 12, it says, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your con contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And so... Many times you see Paul kind of use the, this kind of contribution, the, this kind of um, uh, par participation, as, as we've already seen in, in chapter 8. He uses this in terms of saying, look at the encouragement that you are stirring up. Look, and, and he even talks about the Macedonian brethren as an example in, in um, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, maybe it is 2 Corinthians. Uh, he, he mentions them a few times. But especially as he's talking about the Macedonian Christians, the Macedonian church, he says, listen, they gave, and they gave more than they could. They gave more than initially most people would have thought they could have, but they were so eager, and so much like we already read in chapter 8. And that produces encouragement. And why is that? And I think a big reason for that is because it is spiritual fellowship. 
uh, fellowship that you see in the church, specifically in the church. Um, going beyond that, but you also see this word used in uh, interesting ways, especially when it talks about the sufferings of Christ, particularly in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, Paul kind of talks about that, how, how the Christians there were kind of sharing in that same persecution, sharing in the sufferings that they themselves as the apostles were suffering in, ultimately looking to Christ the sufferings that he was um, had to go through, but first, uh, but over in First Peter chapter four, First Peter chapter four, in verse thirteen, uh, I just want to read this very quickly because there are two aspects that I want to look at when it comes to this notion of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. First of all, in First uh, Peter chapter four. Beginning in verse 12, rather, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share or have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for, this, for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure, though, that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so uh, I wanted to read through that uh, a little bit because especially as you read all throughout First Peter, he talks so much about the sufferings that's going to come upon the church. He talks about how they're supposed to react to those, uh, that kind of suffering, the persecution that's going to come. And he talks about the, the uh, long-suffering, the endurance that they're supposed to have. Uh, specifically because of that goal that they have, the aim being heaven, that they have always on their mindset. But as he's talking about how they suffer, I love the contrast that he makes. If you're going to suffer, you need to make sure that it's for Christ. And, and you see on the screen that I, I believe it's, it's kind of used, first of all, as an evidence of discipleship. It's an evidence of that being a Christian of having this kind of fellowship that you share in these kinds of persecutions. Now, that's not to say that, that if you don't have these persecutions in your life, go seek it out. No, <laughs> I, I think it's kind of like what, when Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he talks about uh, you know, certain individuals that, could, that sh maybe should marry or maybe should not marry, uh, really more so should not marry, um, uh, and he talks about you know, uh, no matter what position you're in, married or slave or whatever, uh, his goal was to get across, I want you to be fully I don't want you to be distracted by anything, no matter what the relationship. If you're a slave, you need to, be, you need to stay a Christian. But that doesn't mean that you have to stay a slave. You know? and, and, and so that doesn't mean we have to go looking for persecution if we don't see it the way you see it in the first century. But at the same time, especially if you, do, if you uh, are met with that kind of persecution, Make sure that you respond the way a Christian is supposed to. And make sure that your suffering only comes because you're a Christian, not because you're doing something wrong. Everyone else, they should be met with, with harsh judgment because of you know, their sinful behavior. That should not be us. We should not look that way. It should not be that when we're disciplined, it's because we have done wrong. It should look, it, we should be examples when we are disciplined, specifically because we are suffering or we are or we're being persecuted because of our uh, hopefully our righteous demeanor over in Hebrews chapter 10 very quickly Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 32 
It says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, again, you see so beautifully, uh, whoever the Hebrew writer is, in what he is saying to these Christians, just that is how you're supposed to respond. It needs to be that people only see a Christian response. It shouldn't be that you respond the same way the rest of the world does. Um, and I think that's the case with a lot of scenarios. We should not be responding the way the rest of the world does, ever. Um, we should respond the way Christ would have us to. But over in Philippians chapter 3, there's a second way that I think that we are supposed to share in the sufferings of Christ. Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3. In verse 10 specifically, he, he, this word is used, but beginning in verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So you'll recall that in the beginning of chapter 3, he's talking about all of these things that he was. According to the law, he was a man of man's. A, 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 a real man's man. He was a true Israelite. Um, and so in verse 8, more than that, I count all these things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that word again, you, you see that clearly in verse 10, that notion of a... That, the fellowship of his sufferings. And what is Paul talking about, uh, especially in light of co the context here? I think he is talking about the loss of those things. That was a sacrifice. Those things Paul willfully sacrificed. But it was a sacrifice that he was so happy to give. And why was it? Because he counted all of those things as rubbish in comparison to the blessings of Christ, of being in a relationship with him. And so those were a couple of things that I wanted to mention when it comes to sharing in the sufferings of Christ, having that kind of fellowship. Um, and so still you have this focus on, on the, uh, on the uh, spiritual realm. Uh, continuing on, you have fellowship in evangelism. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, in his introduction, as he usually starts, he talks so beautifully about this, uh, his remembrance of the Christians at, at the church, especially in Philippi. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation or fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And so uh, from the very beginning, he starts by talking about this kind of fellowship. And he goes into even more detail as you go throughout the, the epistle. There's a few different verses, but specifically in chapter 4, he talks uh, very directly about this kind of participation. Especially the church at Philippi, they were very eager to uh, contribute to uh, Paul's ministry. In verse 15 of chapter 4, it says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And so this is right after the, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, that notion of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you know what? It should be famous. Uh, but it shouldn't be so overlooked in terms of the application. Uh, but this is right after he talks about that. And, and when it comes to that application, what is he speaking of? 
the fact that I can go in need and be fine because I have Christ, or I can even suffer abundance. It's an interesting way that Paul kind of puts that. Uh, but either way, no matter what the situation, if I have Christ, I, I, I can get by. I know how to endure in all circumstances, specifically because of the relationship I have with him. Um, and then right after that, this is where he starts talking even more about this fellowship that they engaged in with Paul. And again, think about that kind of encouragement. And it, it goes both ways. This is such an encouraging uh, fellowship that not only does it encourage the one receiving the gift, but it encourages the one giving it. Um, and, and so it's supposed to encourage, it's supposed to build up both the preacher being Paul and the church itself. And, le and let me just say, from personal experience, it is an encouraging thing. You put food on the table and you, you give me the opportunity, you give me a wonderful opportunity for evangelism, for personal evangelism in the community and for, to be able to just sit down and try to study even more to get to uh, you know, the, the meaty matters of, of, of the faith. And so I appreciate that, and I am always encouraged by that. It should be encouraging both ways. And not just for the local evangelist, but all of the men that we support. Because we have a whole list of guys that we put on the bulletin, that we have on the back. And when you read through those reports, I've done a poor job of printing those out. I, I, I have forgot to print, actually print them out and put them on the back, so I apologize for that. I'll be starting that at the end of this month. But all that just to say, when you read through those reports, it should be encouraging. When you read about how Ray Warfel just had uh, uh, this, this idea of uh, having a singing and, and this, this Bible study for young people around the area to come to, that's encouraging. Paige and I just came from uh, a, a small rural, rural place in, in Mississippi. And that congregation, there were not a lot of there were not a lot of young people for for uh, the kids at our congregation. And I know I know that they wanted to have some more relationships with people around their age. Now we got along pretty well, but that's not the point. It still helps, and it's encouraging. And and so you read something like that, it should be something that just that strengthens us and wants and helps us to want to do more in the kingdom. Um, and so again. All of this has spiritual benefits. Well, not only do you see fellowship and evangelism and all these other things, but you see an active, uh, a very proactive individual effort given when it comes to this as well. Over in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one, Second Peter chapter one, in verse four, Second Peter chapter one in verse four. Um, well, we'll begin in verse 2. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through, uh, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And I think you could probably hazard a guess as to which word is the word that we're looking for when it comes to fellowship. In verse 4, when it talks about that notion of becoming partakers of the divine nature, that's the same word for fellowship. Different, different conjugation, but the same Greek word for fellowship. Koinonia. It's not, that's the American way of pronouncing it. But, and so there is not only just a, just a uh, 
there's not only a collective aspect, a collective notion and aspect of, of engagement, but there's also an individual engagement here. And it goes back to our first point. Fellowship is determined by God, and what matters is we need to be focusing on Him and making sure that we have a true, sincere relationship with Him. Because if we don't, can we say we have fellowship? If we are not trying to partake of that divine nature, and what does that mean? It means getting rid of all of the things that don't look like Him. Making sure we don't look like that. Some of the things we've already read through, particularly when reading about the sharing and the sufferings of Christ, and reacting, looking like, having the qualities and characteristics of Jesus, of our God. That's what that looks like. So we go through all of these passages just because I wanted to look at this word being used in several different contexts to make the case that there are no examples of the church engaging in social or secular activities in any of these examples, in any of these passages. All of these are instructive. All of these are, you know, whether it's a direct command or example, all of these are instructive in showing us what fellowship looks like. And none of it is social or secular. It all has to do with uh, whether it be a command or example from God. It has to do with the, the, the spiritual realm. And so uh, speaking of that, I just want to look at a few applications we have, both the spiritual and physical applications that, that we have, because I do think that you have both sides of the spectrum that you have to look at. And I don't want to just backtrack and go over some of the things we said. But, but first of all, just to make this case, fellowship, just the very word itself, indicates a preferential treatment. It indicates a higher devotion, as you see on the screen. Particularly a higher devotion to you know, the ones that you have fellowship with. Over in Acts chapter 2, looking at an example of, of how, uh, just a depiction of what this is supposed to look like. It, I, we understand what that notion means, to be devoted to someone. We're supposed to be devoted to our spouse. And when we say that I am truly devoted to my spouse, we don't just say that, well, at least we shouldn't say that in a trivial way. We say that to indicate I'm more devoted to her than anyone. And it should be this even more so with God, that when we say I'm devoted to God, we're, it, it's like comparing apples to oranges. We're not saying, you know, I'm devoted to God, but I'm also devoted to my wife. No, when I say I'm devoted to God, she doesn't even compare. She's not even on the same list. Uh, and, and when you think about how we view, if you view someone in that way, or you view a people in that kind of way, that changes how you act, and that changes uh, the, the time spent uh, with, with different groups. In Acts chapter 2 again, in verse 42 beginning... Acts chapter 2, uh, actually, we're going to back up. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse uh, 39. This is right after Peter has given this beautiful sermon, and, and he has struck the hearts of the people with this sermon as he talks about how they have killed the Lord, they have killed the Messiah that they had been waiting for the entire time. And he tells them what they must do, repent and be baptized. In verse 40, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were t together and had all things in common. We're going to come back to this notion especially, but I'm 
uh, but at verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together uh, and with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I will just add something real quick. In verse 45, when it talks about they were sharing, uh, sharing them with all, that... While we have seen that translated, uh, this Greek word translated as sharing, this is not that Greek word here. But you do see that word very uh, clearly in verse 42. It was one of the few things that they were devoted to. They were devoted to fellowship. And here, especially at the beginning of Acts, what you find so, so frequently from chapters 2 to chapter 4 to chapter 5 is what that looks like. What does it look like to be devoted to fellowship? Well, very simply... If you're devoted to fellowship, it means that you are devoted to being together at the very least. It means that there is actual time spent with those people that you claim to have fellowship with. And incidentally, you want to take that a step further. What that means is you really do spend time with the one who gives you that fellowship. It's, I mean, this point is clear, I think, when it comes to the, the people of God, the church. We have to be people that spend time together and more time together and, and, and to the point where you have all things in common. You don't get to that level where you have all things in common unless you're together. I think that that, at least for me, that's much easier to understand. But we have to also take that application to our relationship with God. If we want to have all things in common with him, what that means is we have to deepen our fellowship. And again, how do you deepen fellowship? You have to spend more time with him. And you know a couple ways of doing that? It's what we've been talking about in the Bible class. One, you go and you speak to him and you pray to him. But secondly, just as important, you've got to listen. And maybe even more important, <laughs> you need to stop talking every now and then and you need to just listen. Ears open, mind open, heart open. And you need to make sure uh, that, that you're truly taking in that which he wants to tell you and wants to teach you. And take that uh, with, with an open heart. And so it, it looks like a people who is striving to be together as much as possible. And striving to get to the point, as you see in verse 44, that those who had believed were together and had all things in common. To the point where you can feel so comfortable to have this kind of relationship. Where, where, where you have such intimacy that there is... Um, that there, it, there can be a time where you, you're, you're not even going back to your homes. You're able to stay with one another because that's how dedicated you are to being with one another. Um, this is, incidentally, and this is, a, I think, in, uh, a point that should be made as we talk about this. This is a very unique instance because you're not going to see this very often. Even beyond this, even in Acts, you're not going to see this uh, as often because here's a very special moment where it's at the very beginning of the church, the very establishment of the church, and you have 3,000 souls added. Uh, that doesn't happen very frequently. Um, and especially this notion of, of being able to live. In the long run, you have to go back to work, and you have to still provide for your family and provide for everyone else. But the application still remains. That even when you're doing those things, why are you doing those things? So that you can better provide here. So that way you can better uh, 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 your, deepen your relationships and spend even more time with the people that you so desperately want to be with even more. Um, and so I think that's a very good example of what that looks like to be devoted to fellowship in one degree. But 
I think the reasoning for why you want to be together is also just as important. When you think about the why we want to be together and why we want to have even more fellowship, spend more time together, it's for very specific reasons. It's not just for any reason, and it's not just because, well, we're the most diverse people in the world. You know, you can have a very diverse church, but ultimately, in mindset, it can't be that diverse. Because there's one way, and we're supposed to have one mind, and that is the mind of Christ, as it says in Philippians 2. But I want to look at another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This Greek word is used here. But he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? uh, have, Have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so he mentioned several different things. And, and he makes the point as he's asking these questions. I mean, they're kind of rhetorical. They have no fellowship. They can have no fellowship. Can you imagine? Um, I mean, you see this especially with politics. But, but can you imagine someone who, uh, you know, a, a, a group that works specifically to secure um, the, the rights to have an abortion? And can you imagine another small group that tries to integrate themselves into that group that is a pro-life anti-abortion group do you think that they're gonna you know jive very well do you think that it's gonna just be you know just that easy to 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 get right along and to have no issues no qualms to be so so uh, sincere and close with one another that there are no arguments no they're gonna argue as soon as they see that person as soon as it's mentioned that they are you know directly repugnant to one another in beliefs that can't function and 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 so i think it's just as clear when it comes to things like you know what what fellowship has light with darkness and and as he talks about not being bound together with unbelievers why is that because what business do i have how can i give myself so intimately and so sincerely and dedicate myself in such such a sacred way in a way that god speaks highly of with someone who doesn't even believe in him with someone who doesn't even think that he was the one that instituted this relationship, marriage, that beautiful relationship. It's going to, and, and you know, you have that conversation with people from time to time. Well, I mean, can I, can I go ahead and marry someone anyway? What, when you read a verse like that, what do you think? How are you going to be able to even function? You're going to be constantly like this. And if you've ever had a marriage study with JR, you know that this is one of the biggest no-nos. When you're trying to talk to someone, if all you're doing to each other is just pointing at each other and never trying to communicate, it's never going to get worked out. And so what fellowship can you have when you have these kinds of beliefs that are so directly repugnant to one another? You can't. It's almost, it is impossible. The only way you can have that true fellowship that mends over all differences is if you try to take on the mind of Christ. And so I think that that's an important point to make. But as you talk about some of these applications, I also want to make the case that just because we have a spiritual relationship does not mean that we don't have to engage in physical activity whatsoever. Just because we are, you know, God adds us to the church when we are baptized into Christ for, for, uh, to rise in newness of life, to put the old man away. Just because we have that spiritual relationship now, that doesn't mean that we just get to be idle. That doesn't mean that there's no participation anymore. No, what that means is there's even more. There's a higher responsibility, as we were just talking about. There's a higher devotion. Now we have fellowship not just with God, but with his whole kingdom, with all of his people. And that takes time, and that takes energy. 
And sometimes it takes more uh, time and energy than we care, <laughs> care to give. And yet it's necessary. Uh, over in Galatians chapter 6, uh, very quickly. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I think you see an, a good example of, of what this is supposed to look like. It's not idle. But what does Paul say at the beginning of chapter 6? He says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who has taught the word is to share or to have fellowship, uh, with, uh, have fellowship, all good things, with the one who teaches him. And so from right after Paul has gone into very weighty teaching about what it means to be a son of Abraham, one who has true faith, what is the spiritual application? You need to get to work. With whom? The people that are sons of Abraham. And what does that look like? You've got to bear one another's burdens. And don't think that just because you're bearing your, own, your brother's burden, don't forget your own load. Because you've got to handle both. There's got to be a balance. Um, and we have to continue in, uh, in that kind of fellowship, in that kind of sharing with one another. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that, gives th that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. And so again, just because we, we are put into this spiritual relationship, being added to the body doesn't take away the need to interact, to share, to have fellowship with other members of that body. We're trying to build each other up continually. But with all of that being said, just because we engage in a physical activity, that does not mean <laughs> that that spiritual fellowship is attained. That does not mean that the spiritual need is met. There are lots of times where people can just do something and say, hey, I've checked the box. It's good. And yet there's still a lot more work to do. But what are the, you know, you, I can sit down now because the box is checked. And clearly that's not the, the kind of obedience that God is looking for. And, and I think you see this in a few different examples. Acts chapter 5, you see Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> in it, they are Christians. They are members of the church. And they even give a contribution but what's the problem? They did it in a dishonest way. They lied. And they were trying to lie to the Holy Spirit, incidentally. And because of that, they were killed. But, but God, they gave you a gift. That doesn't matter. They didn't give it honestly. And that wasn't really a gift for me. That was more so to honor them. And so just because, you know, there's physical action there that does not mean that the spiritual need is met. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have people that think that tolerance is the most virtuous of all of God's commandments. Even though God has said, you should not tolerate this. You can't accept this in, your, in, in, in the local body, in your congregation. You need to reject it. And he even uses that language of that kind of leavening. Just understand, a little leaven, it levels the whole it leavens all of it. And it does have a very uh, infectious, um, a very infectious uh, demeanor across the board. And so, he goes into this application of you need to reject that, you need to withdraw from them, you need to disassociate from them, because one, people outside of the church, they can't see that you tolerate this. They can't see that people, my people, tolerate this kind of sin. And going beyond that, you can't handle this in your congregation. It will destroy you, it will eat you from the inside out. 
Now you have people even today that look at this kind of application and they just simply won't have it. They won't do it. And, and so, you, you know, they decide, even though Paul says, don't even eat with such a one because of what that indicates. Uh, I, I will just say eating is not, uh, I don't think eating is ever used uh, I, I don't believe it's ever used throughout the New Testament uh, in terms of fellowship. Uh, that word at least is ever used. But I do think when you eat with someone, that indicates much. <laughs> you would not have a meal, have a cordial meal with someone who, men, slapped your wife. If you did, I mean, honestly, there would be a lot of people who thought less of you, not to mention your wife. <laughs> because how could you? How could, you, how could you have just such an such a easygoing conversation with someone and show the rest of the world that we're at, this, we're at this place where we can just sit down and have a meal together and enjoy each other's company after they know that they have insulted and disrespected your most beloved? I, it, it doesn't make sense. And so you have people who, who think the same way even today. We can, well, we can eat with someone. That's physical activity. That doesn't mean that the spiritual fellowship is attained. That doesn't mean that, that it's actually there. Though people act like it, it's just a facade. Uh, and and wh whether they want to admit it or not, that's all it is. And so uh, I, I think that there's some interesting applications there. But finally, very quickly, I, I want to look at all of the things that I think we can fellowship. It, it, it's not just that when we talk about fellowship, as I've been going throughout the, all the many instances that this word is used, I made the case that you never see an example where the church engages in a social or secular fellowship. Um, and I think that that point is, is firm and solid. I think that's confirmed. Whether I made it well or not, uh, you, you can see that throughout the scriptures. But when you look at the different things uh, that you can, I, I don't think it's just God that you can fellowship. We can have fellowship with God and his people through him, but we're also very capable of being uh, uh, partakers of what is unscriptural as well. Um, in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 29, Jesus keep, uh, just keeps, keeps it coming with all these woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And he keeps calling them hypocrites, talking about how they have viewed the law and ultimately how they just don't, obey it. But he says, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Oh no, we would have been on the other side. But Jesus says, so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? And so you have people, and incidentally you have people even today saying things like that when it comes to past things, uh, you know, what, what they would look at as egregious sins throughout just our nation's history alone saying similar kinds of things, and they don't realize just the dramatic irony of, of some of the things that they're saying and some of the similarities. But, but you have these men who are saying, we would never have been partners. Essentially, we would never have been kindred spirits with these kinds of men, because what were they doing? They did not care about what God said. They hated the men who said, thus saith the Lord. They hated men, just like uh, the king who looks at the prophet Micaiah. He says, you know, Jehoshaphat, he says, is there anyone who still speaks in the name of the Lord? And the king just says, well, yeah. I mean, there's one guy, but honestly, I hate the man. And why is it? Because he says, thus saith the Lord. And so, and so they look at a story like that, the, the Jews in the first century, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they say, oh, we would have not been like that king. We would have been partners. We would have been kindred spirits with the prophet who in the face of persecution and much affliction said, no, I'm still going to speak the words of God. 
if, even if it kills me. You can say that all you want, but what are you doing right now? They had only persecuted Christ every chance they got. They persecuted the one that the prophets were always teaching about every single waking moment. And they tried to counter everything he said. They tried to catch him in all of his words. And what were they doing? They were proving. They, they were just <laughs> proving themselves wrong. If you really, if you really were sons of Abraham, you would, you would hear what I have to say. If you really were men who were kindred spirits with the prophets, you would not be persecuting me. And, it, and it's not that they had merely faltered here or there. They really had become kindred spirits in this sinful behavior uh, with, with the, uh, the, their fathers in murdering the prophets because they were trying to persecute the very one that they were pro prophesying about all along. Well, with all that being said, not only can, are we absolutely capable of sharing in unscriptural things, we can defile our righteous fellowship with unscriptural things, with unscriptural fellowship. Though we may try and share in things of the Lord, we can profane and even defile that service by sharing in things that are not for us, that ultimately are sinful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I think you see a good example of this. Paul, as he's speaking about communion of the Lord's Supper, in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so I love it, I love it whenever Paul makes these kinds of arguments. Because as he makes these arguments, he makes clear, am I saying that these, are, these, these you know, mute, deaf, and idols of wood and stone, do they really have power? Are they really gods? Of course not. They're not. But what you're doing is having fellowship with, you are sharing in sin. And you're trying, as, as, as you look at these things and as you share in sin and as you share with uh, the cup of demons, what you're doing is you're going over and you're acting like it's just a trivial thing to do that while also trying to partake at the table of the Lord. And you can't have both. I think so much of what James says uh, in James chapter 4, you know, you need to draw near to God and resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? By drawing near to him. You can't be friends with God and friends with the world. They're enemies. They hate him. And you know what? Both the beliefs are, as we were saying earlier, directly opposite. They're directly repugnant to one another. And so there can be no fellowship. And yet people so often act like, oh, well, no, no, we can. We can have, we can have you know, a, a foot in each camp. No, you can't. You can't sit on the fence. There is no sitting on the fence. And so we can... Uh, corrupt, we can defile or profane that which, uh, well, that which is, should be held up in righteous uh, regard by, by ourselves. And so we, don't want, we want to make sure that we stay away from those things, those sins, and uh, kind of like we read in first, or talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we want to make sure we reject those things so that way we don't profane uh, the good things that we have within the church. Well, finally, in 2 John chapter, uh, <laughs> 2 John chapter 1, in verses 9 through 11, <clears throat> what we also find is that our participation can be easier than we think. 
Second John, in verse 9, it says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Coming back to the, the first man, though, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. And why? What's the purpose for that instruction? In verse 11, because the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. He has fellowship in his evil deeds. And that's a, I, that is such a serious instruction. When there's a false teacher, when there's a man that is preaching another gospel, when there's a man that is teaching against the one true gospel, teaching against Christ, don't you dare welcome him in. And don't you dare act like everything's okay. Because that man, he has disrespected, he has insulted, he is an active enemy of your most beloved. And so there can be no fellowship. Now, we're going to talk more about what fellowship looks like, uh, but particularly how, how, how do we devote ourselves to it. We've already had a lesson in talking about the inherent promises of fellowship, but I just want to delve a little bit deeper and look at how this should affect the church, particularly the local congregation, how this should affect our individual relationships with one another. Well, as, as we conclude with the thoughts this morning, or this evening, in talking about just this very, uh, hopefully, basic lesson on fellowship, the question is, do you have fellowship with God right now? Can you look at your life and say that I have a relationship with him and a relationship that is uncompromised? Or do you have fellowship with the world? And as we already indicated, you can't have both because both sides are trying to get all of you. And if you try to put, get, uh, put a, you know, sit on the fence, you try to have a foot in each camp, guess what? That means that the world has you, the devil has you snared. And you don't have a true relationship with God. But as, as I you know, extend the invitation tonight, don't think that the main pitch here is, is um, that, that we want you to have fellowship with us first and foremost. We do. And the church here would love to be able to extend that kind of fellowship that comes only through having a relationship with God. But that's not the main pitch. The main pitch is, do you want fellowship with Him? Do you want to have fellowship with Christ, with our Father? If you're subject to the invitation tonight, if you want that fellowship and you need help in that assistance, we would love to aid you in that in any way that we can. Please let your need be made known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.